Due to the graphic nature of these events, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence and death that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On April 19th, 1995, at 9.02 a.m., a blast pierced 24-year-old Jason Williamson's ears. Sitting at his desk at the Federal Employees Credit Union, all he saw was darkness inside the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building. Soon, the air cleared a little, revealing sunlight in the distance. Suddenly, his colleague Bobby Purvine screamed, What happened? He didn't have an answer. Williamson helped Bobby climb over her desk. They huddled together in shock, fixating on the light from outside. As they moved toward it, they realized the sunshine wasn't coming through a window. The entire north side of the Murrah building was gone, reduced to rubble. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a ParCast original. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. Normally, we take things story by story, conspiracy by conspiracy. But in this four-episode special, we're looking into one devastating moment in U.S. history, the Oklahoma City bombing. At the time, it was the worst terrorist incident on American soil, and it changed the social landscape of the country forever. Previously, we detailed the rise of separatist militias and their impact on Timothy McVeigh's life. Today, we'll take a deep dive into the day of the attack, followed by McVeigh's arrest and trial. Next episode, we'll look at how the legacy of the bombing shaped U.S. policy and rhetoric in the years afterward, and how it still impacts our world today. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, Dot com slash conspiracy. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. 
they headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. On the morning of April 19, 1995, Oklahoma City had clear skies and a calm breeze. But 24-year-old Dana Cooper had no time to take in the perfect spring day. Cooper was one of the 550 people who worked in the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building. She just landed a new job as the director of the America's Kids Daycare Center. The role allowed her to bring her two-year-old son Christopher to work and spend more time with him. America's Kids was caring for 21 children that day, ranging in age from six months to five years old. Four cribs lined the second-floor windows, The infants liked watching the clouds and reaching for sunlight. Cooper arrived at work with her son just before 9 a.m. All the older children sat in a circle and sang along to the Barney theme song. I love you, you love me, we're a happy family. At that same moment, Timothy McVeigh parked a rider rental truck in a drop-off zone directly below the daycare. At 9 a.m. sharp, he ignited the two-minute fuse and fled. The truck filled with dense smoke. The flame inched closer and closer to the more than 4,000 pounds of ammonium nitrate and fuel oil until... The blast instantly killed Cooper and her son, along with the babies by the window. They were among the 19 children and three daycare employees who perished in the bombing. Those who weren't killed in the explosion may have died during the collapse of the Murrah Building's north side. The bomb shattered the nine-story structure's glass facade and destroyed support pillars. Within seven seconds of detonation, the entire north side crumbled into a pile of rubble in a 30-foot-wide, 8-foot-deep crater. In total, at least 168 people died in the incident. Only 99 of those were federal employees, McVeigh's intended target. Over 500 more people were injured. At the time, people had no idea the source of the blast was a bomb. Many thought the explosion was from a gas leak or a foreign terrorist attack. They certainly didn't think it was done by an American like McVeigh. He was nowhere to be found, disappearing into a getaway car after the explosion. The Murrah Building was ground zero for the bomb, but most of downtown Oklahoma City felt the destruction. Glass shattered and structures collapsed in 258 properties within a 10-block radius. 
two of the 168 deaths occurred in this area. Five blocks north of the Murrah building, EMT Bill Kenny was teaching a class in the Emergency Medical Services Authority building. At 9.02 a.m., he heard the explosion. Seconds later, a third of the classroom ceiling collapsed. Kenny and the other medics rushed to the back door, thinking the blast came from their own building. Then they saw the dark smoke rising from downtown. The EMTs immediately jumped into the ambulances and rushed toward the smoke. When they realized the blast came from the Murrah building, the EMTs braced for the worst. The ambulances arrived at the wreckage at 9.04 a.m. Kenny and his colleagues got to work treating the injured people filling the street, confused, bloodied, and disoriented survivors. Within the hour, the EMTs transported more than 100 victims to the hospital. But there were still so many more who were missing. Some of them were trapped in the rubble, like 28-year-old Amy Downs. She worked at the Federal Employee Credit Union with Jason Williamson, but she wasn't as lucky as him. The credit union was located a floor above America's Kids, and Downs' desk faced the front of the building. She got caught in the collapse and fell to the basement level. Her body was buried under 10 feet of rubble. Downs was wedged between two concrete floor slabs in an upside-down seated position. She tried to move, but she couldn't. Her body was numb. All she saw was darkness. She heard voices outside talking about the daycare center. She prayed aloud and yelled for help, hoping they'd hear her screams. They didn't. Around 10.30 a.m., an hour and a half after the explosion, she gained the strength to maneuver a hand out of the debris. A first responder named Ron spotted it. He removed some of the rubble. But soon, his two-way radio crackled with an urgent alert. Rescuers had found another bomb. The police ordered a mandatory evacuation of the area. Ron apologized to Downs and left, joining swarms of people running away from the building. Stuck under the concrete, Downs had no hope for surviving a second bomb. She prayed and braced for another blast. Which never came. Police determined that the suspected second bomb was actually a three-foot tow missile that had been stored in the building's U.S. Customs Office. It was dormant. An hour later, law enforcement cleared the building for first responders to return. Firefighter Alan Hill led his crew back into the rubble, looking to recover dead bodies. They didn't think anyone was still alive. But while surveying the basement, he saw Down's hand in the concrete wreckage. They immediately started clearing the debris. Down's lower half was trapped by steel. She had a big gash on one of her legs, and shards of glass were embedded in her back, making it more difficult to move her. Hill determined that they needed to work especially carefully. One mistake could exacerbate her injuries or possibly kill her. To make matters worse, they didn't have a lot of time to do it. An industrial-sized refrigerator dangled by loose live wires above them. Meanwhile, 
Below them, water pooled in the basement from the building's broken water pipes. After being buried in rubble for six hours, Downs was finally freed. Rescues like hers continued throughout the day until the final survivor, a 15-year-old girl, was recovered at 7 p.m. After that, first responders didn't find anyone else alive. The rest of the efforts would be focused on finding the bodies of the dead. The rescue and aftermath received wall-to-wall coverage by local and national news. News choppers circled above the Murrah building, broadcasting the devastating footage to the world. Reporters noted that the blast occurred on the second anniversary of the 1993 Waco siege. They wondered if the two incidents were connected, or if it was a follow-up to the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, which was done by radical Middle Eastern terrorists. The Washington Post reported the attack was caused by an apparent terrorist car bomb. Headlines in the Daily Oklahoman newspaper declared, Terror in the Heartland, and things like this don't happen here. At the time, terrorism was seen as something that happened in other countries. It had no place in the peaceful Great Plains of the United States. Until now, as reporters lamented over America's lost innocence, the search for a suspect began. But unknown to everyone, the culprit was already in custody. Next, the FBI hunts down Timothy McVeigh, and he almost gets away. History, politics, true crime. The new Spotify original from Parcast has it all. Hi, I'm Carter, and I am thrilled to tell you about the new series, Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers. It uncovers the most damning details surrounding history's most high-profile leaders. Every Tuesday through the 2020 election, host Ashley Flowers shines a light on the darker side of the American presidency. From torrid love affairs and contemptible corruption to shocking cover-ups and even murder. She'll expose the personal and professional controversies you may never knew existed. You'll hear some wildly true stories about presidents such as JFK, Thomas Jefferson, Teddy Roosevelt, and more. Very Presidential highlights the exploits you never learned in history class, but probably should have. Family drama, personal vices, dirty secrets. These presidents may have run, but they most certainly can't hide. Follow Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the story. On April 19, 1995, just before 9 a.m., 27-year-old Timothy McVeigh parked a truck bomb in front of the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building. Once the fuse lit, he placed earplugs in his ears, crossed the street, and never looked back. He felt the explosion as he walked north. The buildings wobbled and glass shattered around him. He dodged tumbling bricks and falling power lines, catching sight of the dark smoke rising above Oklahoma City. 
McVeigh felt satisfied, thinking the blast had completely destroyed the Murrah building. He'd targeted the structure because it housed the local offices of agencies he despised, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, the Drug Enforcement Administration, and the Secret Service. Social Security offices and a credit union were also in the building, but he just considered those casualties as collateral damage. The higher the body count, the more likely his message would make it to the federal government. He wouldn't be pushed around anymore. Federal law enforcement had tried to dismantle the white supremacist pro-gun groups he idolized throughout the early 90s. This resulted in the 1993 Waco siege and the 1992 Ruby Ridge standoff. As revenge, McVeigh executed the blast to coincide with Waco's second anniversary. And as far as McVeigh knew, he'd taken down the federal structure. Feeling triumphant, he walked toward an alley behind a YMCA where he'd parked his getaway car, a yellow 1977 Mercury Grand Marquis. McVeigh peeled out of the city. As he headed north on the highway, he sat in silence. He refused to turn on the radio. He was today's news. Instead, he listened and looked for any helicopters or unmarked police cars on his tail. He wasn't nervous about getting caught. He was actually trying to bait the police. McVeigh dreamed up the perfect scenario. After his arrest, he'd be famous. At the right moment, when everyone was watching, he'd take credit for the bombing and reveal the government's anti-gun agenda to the world. He'd warn them that they needed to join together and fight for their right to bear arms. To hasten his arrest, McVeigh made himself as suspicious as possible. His getaway car didn't have license plates, and inside the car, he had a sealed envelope filled with pages from the Turner Diaries. He chose a relevant excerpt in which a white supremacist group leaves a truck bomb at FBI headquarters. Just after 9 a.m., the Oklahoma Highway Patrol ordered all units to Oklahoma City to help with rescue efforts. State Trooper Charles J. Hanger halted his usual patrol near the Kansas border and headed south. A little over an hour later, new instructions came in. Hanger was ordered to stay where he was. They'd received reports of a broken down minivan a few miles north. Hanger turned around and headed north when he happened to spot McVeigh's unplated car. At 10.20 a.m., he pulled him over. McVeigh pulled onto the grassy shoulder behind Hanger's patrol car. They got out of their respective cars, and McVeigh was cooperative. Despite his hatred for federal agents, he still had some respect for local cops, and he wanted to see where this traffic stop went. McVeigh claimed he just bought his vehicle, hence the missing license plate. While the excuse was partially true, Hanger didn't buy it. He thought the car might be stolen, so he asked for McVeigh's license. As McVeigh reached for his wallet, Hanger noticed the bulge in his jacket, a Glock pistol. Hanger withdrew his own gun and arrested McVeigh, cuffing him against the trunk. He loaded McVeigh into the patrol car, 
then asked for his permission to search the mercury. McVeigh watched intently through the rearview mirror as Hanger searched the car and found the incriminating envelope. He wanted Hanger to read the articles inside, but instead, he just left it in the car. Then, he drove McVeigh to the Noble County Jail. McVeigh was booked on four misdemeanor charges related to his unplated car and illegal concealed weapon. While Hanger fingerprinted him, they listened to a TV news report on the bombing. The reporter relayed a vague description of the bomber, a white male who stood between five foot nine and six foot one. Hanger stared at the tall and lanky McVeigh. McVeigh laughed it off and said, That ain't me, I'm six foot two. While lying in his cell, McVeigh overheard everyone talking about the bombing. The inmates couldn't believe the rising death toll as more bodies were recovered. But McVeigh remained silent. He didn't react or engage with anyone. It wasn't time to come clean, yet. He tried to remain aloof, but he was anxious. McVeigh wondered how long it would take the FBI to tie him to the bombing and give him the public platform he longed for. In the meantime, federal agents and police officers were chasing leads from all across the world. Law enforcement thought foreign terrorists were likely responsible. Just two years earlier, a group of Middle Eastern radicals had bombed the World Trade Center. Terrorism experts noted the Oklahoma City attack was similar, bombs in large office buildings that exploded from the ground level. But FBI Special Agent Clinton Van Zant disagreed with that assumption. An expert profiler, he'd worked as the lead negotiator on the 1993 Waco siege. He immediately noted that the Oklahoma City bombing occurred on Waco's two-year anniversary. Van Zant believed the bomber was angry with the U.S. government about Waco. While working on the siege, he'd spent hours studying the Branch Davidians' leader, David Koresh, and he'd also gained a good grasp of who Koresh's loyal followers were. Van Zant's early psychological profile of the culprit matched McVeigh almost exactly. He predicted that the bomber was a mid-twenties white male military veteran. He'd belonged to a militia group as a fringe member, and the bomber probably worked alone or with one other person. Van Zandt's supervisor, however, dismissed his theories right away. It sounded so unlikely that an American would attack their own country. Such a thought was unfathomable. The rest of the FBI continued to follow leads on foreign terrorists while police investigated Ground Zero. Just two hours after the bombing, at 11 a.m., Oklahoma City Detective Mike McPherson arrived at the Murrah Building. As he walked through the debris, he noticed a large piece of metal. He took a closer look and realized that it was a charred axle. Its mangled appearance meant it was probably close to the bomb when it detonated. He cleaned off the metal, revealing part of a vehicle identification number, or VIN. McPherson sent it to the National Insurance Crime Bureau, hoping they'd find a match in its database. Immediately, the partial number turned up a result. A 1993 Ford truck owned by a Ryder rental shop in Miami, Florida. Recently, 
Ryder had sent the vehicle to Elliott's Body Shop in Junction City, Kansas. At 5 p.m., seven hours after the bombing, the FBI visited Elliott's Body Shop. The owner told agents that a man named Robert D. Kling had rented the truck two days earlier. He and several workers described the two customers to an artist who drew sketches of their prime suspects, John Doe's number one and number two. Finally, law enforcement had a few major leads. A name, two physical descriptions, and a vehicle. The next day, on April 20th, agents showed the sketches of the John Doe's to every business between Johnson City and Oklahoma City. Late in the evening, investigators reached the Dreamland Motel. The manager recognized John Doe number one, but not as Robert Kling. Six days earlier, that same man had checked into the motel under the name Timothy McVeigh. The manager recalled that McVeigh had two vehicles, a Ryder rental truck and an old yellow Mercury Grand Marquis. For his contact information, McVeigh had written down a Decker, Michigan farm as his current residence. Suddenly, the FBI had not only another name, but an address too. Agents quickly figured out the land belonged to a third person, Terry Nichols, who'd served in the army with McVeigh. Now equipped with these names, investigators called every police station in Oklahoma for leads. They also checked all the names with the FBI's National Crime Information Center database. Their search found McVeigh had been arrested almost immediately after the bombing. The FBI contacted the Noble County Sheriff, Jerry R. Cook, at 10.30 a.m. on April 21st. Cook confirmed that McVeigh had been arrested. In fact, he was still in the Noble County Jail awaiting a hearing. The FBI agents rushed to their helicopter. But while the agents were on their way to Noble County, Sheriff Cook double-checked the paperwork. He didn't realize how close McVeigh was to securing his release. His hearing was scheduled for 10.15 a.m. Well, that was 15 minutes before the FBI called. Because he had no prior convictions, the judge would likely let him go on minimum bail. Cook needed to stop McVeigh's release before he got away. The sheriff ran two blocks from his office to the courthouse. When he arrived, out of breath, he spotted the prosecutor still waiting for McVeigh. In a stroke of luck, the hearing hadn't started yet. Cook passed a note to the prosecutor asking to keep McVeigh in custody. The FBI was on the way. Stunned, the prosecutor called the district attorney's office to confirm it. McVeigh's hearing was indeed postponed because the inmate was a suspect in the Oklahoma City bombing. Meanwhile, Cook escorted McVeigh from his holding room back to the jail, saying the judge wasn't ready to see him yet. McVeigh knew something was up. Everyone seemed to be acting different. Sheriff Cook seemed more cautious around him. The guards gave him sideways glances. When he arrived back at his cell, all the other inmates had been removed from his block. He decided to take a look outside. From a window, McVeigh saw reporters gathering in front of the police station. He smiled to himself. 
the FBI had finally figured it out. That afternoon, FBI agents landed at the Noble County Jail. According to McVeigh, they showed him photos of the children killed in the bombing to encourage a confession. The FBI, however, denied this. Meanwhile, agents searched the Mercury Grand Marquis and opened the envelope of Turner Diaries pages. Forensics found traces of explosives on the clothes McVeigh was wearing during his initial arrest. By 4.30 p.m., McVeigh was officially arrested. At the same time, agents in Buffalo, New York, were interviewing McVeigh's father, Bill. The 55-year-old factory worker recalled his son's anger over Waco. Then, he confirmed that his son was close friends with Army veterans Michael Fortier and Terry Nichols. Bill told the FBI, if Tim was involved, Nichols was probably involved. Armed with that information, agents went on the hunt for McVeigh's accomplices. Next... Timothy McVeigh faces the ultimate punishment. Now, back to the story. On April 21, 1995, two days after the Oklahoma City bombing, the FBI arrested their prime suspect, 27-year-old Army vet Timothy McVeigh. His father, Bill, alerted agents to two possible accomplices, 40-year-old Terry Nichols and 26-year-old Michael Fortier. The FBI didn't have to look too far for Nichols. That day in Harrington, Kansas, Nichols heard his name mentioned as a suspect during a radio news report on the bombing. He panicked, fearing the FBI would raid his home in a deadly siege like Waco. Nichols wanted to keep his wife and baby daughters safe, so he brought them to the Harrington police station and turned himself in. That afternoon, the FBI questioned Nichols for nine hours. He was charged with conspiracy and involuntary manslaughter and eventually sentenced to life in prison without possibility of parole. Following the tip from McVeigh's dad, Michael and Lori Fortier were next on the FBI's suspect list. The couple tried to clear themselves of wrongdoing, even though they did know about McVeigh's plan. Lori had made a fake ID for McVeigh, and Fortier went with him to scout the Murrah building. On April 27th, the Fortiers read a statement on CNN denying any involvement and asserting McVeigh's innocence. A month later, the FBI called them in for questioning. At first, the Fortiers refused to give the FBI any information. Michael told friends that if he was called as a witness in court, he'd stay silent and pick his nose. That summer, the Justice Department offered him a deal. If he and Lori would testify as witnesses in Nichols and McVeigh's separate trials, Lori would receive immunity from criminal charges. Michael could also plead guilty to reduced charges, illegal firearms trafficking, and knowledge of the bombing. He wouldn't be charged with any direct involvement. The Fortiers were hesitant to take the deal, but once they heard the death penalty was being considered for McVeigh, the Fortiers realized Michael could get the same. By August, he accepted the deal. 
He would serve 12 years in prison and his wife received immunity. Even with their star witness secured, the Justice Department worked to strengthen their case against McVeigh. Agents worked for 32 months to amass 28,000 interviews and 3.5 tons of evidence. McVeigh was indicted on 11 total charges, three related to the bomb, and eight for first-degree murder of federal law enforcement officers. The murders of the rest of the victims fell under the state's jurisdiction. He'd be indicted on those counts after the trial. Nearly two years after the bombing on April 24, 1997, McVeigh's trial began. The prosecution called 137 witnesses to testify, including Michael and Lori Fortier and McVeigh's sister, Jennifer. The prosecution said McVeigh's anti-government ideology was his primary motivation for the bombing. His pages of the Turner Diaries, his hateful pamphlets and bumper stickers were all used as evidence. On the other side, Stephen Jones led McVeigh's defense team, The 55-year-old Oklahoma native was no stranger to high-profile political cases. But McVeigh and Jones had a strained relationship from the start. McVeigh wanted him to use the necessity defense, arguing that the bombing was necessary to prevent more harm. McVeigh believed that the government posed an imminent threat to gun owners, as evidenced by Waco and Ruby Ridge. His bombing prevented any further federal action. Jones rejected the idea because he couldn't prove McVeigh had faced any imminent danger from the government. But McVeigh kept pushing for it because he could use it as a platform to spread his rhetoric. He even told his lawyers that he was willing to testify in court, admit to the bombing, and say this was a necessity. Jones held firm on his decision to keep McVeigh's politics out of court. Instead, the defense played into the initial fears that foreign terrorists had committed the Oklahoma City bombing. He argued that the blast wasn't only executed by McVeigh. It was sponsored by Iraqi terrorists. The jury didn't buy it. Almost two months later, on June 2, 1997, They found McVeigh guilty on all counts. He was sentenced to death by lethal injection. His would be the first federal execution since 1963. After a series of failed appeals, McVeigh's execution was finally set for May 16, 2001. The 33-year-old dropped any remaining appeals, saying he'd rather die than stay in prison. According to a fellow inmate, in the months before his execution, McVeigh starved himself so he'd look like a, quote, concentration camp victim. He wanted to be seen as a martyr for anti-government and white supremacist groups. But one thing derailed McVeigh's plan. Five days before the execution date, on May 11th, the FBI found over 4,000 missing documents from his case, they had neglected to show them to Jones before the trial. As a result, the Attorney General delayed McVeigh's lethal injection by one month. This gave the defense team time to look through the documents, although it seemed unlikely they would find any useful new evidence. McVeigh was hopeful, though. 
He had a feeling the government had withheld evidence in his case, but he was surprised the FBI actually admitted it. He figured the bureaucratic error would buy him at least 60 more days alive. He was wrong. On June 6th, a federal judge ruled that the released documents didn't change the verdict. There'd be no more appeals, no more delays. McVeigh's death was finally set for June 11th, 2001 at 7 a.m. McVeigh prepared for his death by writing letters to newspapers, using his infamy to spread his rhetoric one last time. In one letter published by the Buffalo News, McVeigh apologized for the bombing, sort of. He wrote, quote, I am sorry these people had to lose their lives, but that's the nature of the beast. It's understood going in what the human toll will be. June 10th was McVeigh's last full day alive. He spent it napping, eating ice cream, and watching CNN. He smiled at the news coverage about his demise. In the early hours of the next morning, he turned off the TV and became restless. He tossed and turned in bed, then paced in his cell. At 6 a.m., guards led McVeigh to the execution chamber. Before he was strapped into the gurney, he handed a piece of paper to the warden. On it, he had transcribed William Ernest Henley's poem Invictus. The last verse ends with the lines, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. As the execution got underway, McVeigh didn't say a word and communicated primarily by nodding his head. Survivors of the bombing and family members of the victims closely watched his final minutes. Ten of them attended in person, while 232 watched via a closed-circuit TV feed in Oklahoma City. At around 7.10 a.m., a doctor injected a fatal dose of chemicals through a catheter in McVeigh's right leg. The medication collapsed his lungs, then stopped his heart. McVeigh remained stoic as the chemicals flooded his bloodstream. He stared at the journalists, then the survivors and victims' family members. He looked up at the ceiling, gulping for several breaths, then he stopped. Timothy McVeigh was pronounced dead at 7.14 a.m. The man responsible for the Oklahoma City bombing was gone. But sadly, his hate lived on and led to more deaths. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back Wednesday with our final episode on the Oklahoma City bombing. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Well, not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Conspiracy Theories, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Conspiracy Theories on Spotify, just open the app and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar. Until then... Remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. 
Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Mallory Cara, with writing assistance by Ali Wicker, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. It's the most powerful position in American politics, and arguably the world. But behind the oath to preserve, protect, and defend lie dark secrets posed to leave some legacies in disgrace. Don't forget to check out the new Spotify original from ParCast, Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers. Every Tuesday through the 2020 election, host Ashley Flowers shines a light on the darker side of the American presidency, exposing wildly true stories about history's most high-profile leaders. To hear more, follow Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.